الجزيرة بودكاست Sports fans out there will know we're talking on some special days now. Qatar 2022 is underway and this World Cup has entered history as the first Mondial ever to be played in the Middle East. We all know football or soccer like our listeners in America like to call it is the most popular sport in the world. But did you know it's more than just a game, especially in the Middle East? Hey everyone, I'm Sami Zaydan and welcome to the Essential Middle East podcast. Okay, let me explain what I'm on about. You see, football is connected to so many parts of our lives, right? I'm not just talking about traffic and flights. No, it also sometimes shapes societies and political life. It can be used to empower or undermine states or strengthen unity in times of crisis. Iraq's football players have achieved in one night what years of conflict couldn't. Their unlikely 1-0 victory over Saudi Arabia in the final of the Asian Cup has united their nation in pride and joy. For a few hours at least, Iraqis put aside sectarian hostility to celebrate their country's greatest sporting achievement. In many cases, football became associated with politics, power, national identity and political dissent. Listen to this chant by fans of Moroccan football club Raja Al-Baydawi. of Palestine, criticizing the inaction of Arab states and denouncing corruption. All right, let's get into it now with our special guest. He wrote a book called Football in the Middle East. So my name is Abdullah Arian. I'm a professor of Middle East history at Georgetown University in Qatar, where I am joining you from today. Great to have you with us, Abdullah. Okay, so tell me first of all, do Middle Easterners and Arabs have a different approach to football or soccer? In many ways, the game itself takes on the characteristics and the aspects of kind of what, you know, local culture, life is all about in different parts of the world. And so this is why, for instance, you know, when we look at a team like the national Brazilian team or the team from Argentina or from Germany, we tend to associate certain kinds of characteristics based on the country, based on the culture. And I think to a certain extent, if we actually trace back the development and evolution of football in the region, in the Arab world in particular, we see that it certainly takes on certain features on the basis of the kind of experiences of the population. We know that it it has these colonial origins, right? The fact that it was introduced by colonial officials as part of this kind of disciplining project because they believed that, you know, learning team sports gave you physical conditioning as well as a sense of rules and structure. And so this was kind of very much the idea of how football gets introduced into the region going back to the kind of late 19th, early 20th century. And then all of a sudden, you know, once it escapes from the plane of kind of elites within society and reaches into the kind of the, the sort of street level, so to speak, where it's not really organized, it's not really structured in the same way, and it certainly is not having the same kind of impact that the colonial officials were hoping for, um, it takes on a life of its own. And I think this is kind of part of the beauty of the game. 
So you mentioned the colonial period, Abdullah. Has that got something to do with the historical roots of football in the Middle East? How colonialists kind of used it as a method of cultural or political domination? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the purpose of introducing, you know, the sport into the region. It usually happened through British and French officials who were stationed in various Arab states. Was it a form of creating allegiance to the system kind of thing? Yeah, it was definitely an emphasis on physical fitness as a means of kind of creating the modern citizen, right? If we go back to this idea of a kind of white man's burden, a civilizing mission that was taking place in much of the colonized world, you know, what today we call the global south in Asia, Africa, you know, there was a sense that they were there to try to create new citizens, modern citizens, people who could actually be left behind to kind of take the reins of the state after the colonial powers eventually would leave. And have a sense of allegiance to the colonializers? Was that the idea or to their culture? Certainly, the culture was definitely a big part of it and abandoning kind of certain elements of their own culture in the process. And so, you know, sports and in this case, football was very much seen as being kind of part of that process. You're essentially speaking the same language, following the same rules being disciplined in a certain kind of way on the basis of, you know, what the structure of the game demanded was that they would have an elite. Again, this wasn't meant for the entire population. It was meant for a specific urban-based elite. If we're talking about a place like Egypt, for instance, the Effendi class were the ones who were kind of integrated into all things colonial and expected to kind of take the reins of the governing institutions and be the people who would be left behind to kind of run things once the colonial powers would eventually leave and preserve their interests, right? Because this was also about preserving things like access to the Suez Canal, again, in the case of Egypt, or, you know, the natural resources in terms of the agricultural production, cotton, and so forth. So this was not just a game. How did it also become a tool in decolonization? The trick with a lot of these kind of cultural forms is the fact that as much as certain powers might try to control them or contain them, it becomes really difficult because once you hand something off to a population, that can be reformulated. They can use it in other ways that you didn't think kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, they can form their own clubs. Those clubs can be a source of, you know, nationalist upheaval in a way, right? That this is a place where people gather and talk, exchange ideas, you know, express grievances develop their own identity, their own connections. When you think about the fact that, you know, trying to create a nation state means joining together different regions that previously may not have been connected to one another. And yet now all of a sudden these clubs are getting together, playing matches. And so they're even giving themselves a sense of geography. So they kind of played a role in the era of national identity and state formation, it sounds like you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a place like Sudan, for instance, there was a sense that when college graduates were not allowed to form political parties, not allowed to be part of the government by the British, that they actually got their first taste of real, you know, governance experience in the football league, right? That this was a institution that needed its own rules, that needed people to organize things. And so it's been referred to as kind of a first site of mass politics in Sudan long before they were able to actually form legal parties that can operate within kind of a parliamentary system. In a place like Jordan, for instance, where you have the Hashemites, you know, trying to legitimize themselves in the face of kind of this massive Jordanian population, they put on these kind of major football spectacles, a kind of King's Cup that was meant to kind of ingratiate themselves to the citizens. And so again, this was a means of portraying your own national identity, of trying to consolidate that identity in the face of challenges that may have existed both within society and also from the colonial powers. Thinking about everything you've been saying, and I'm wondering how important is it to have a World Cup 
come to the Middle East and North Africa for the first time. There's really significance in the fact that we know that the love for the game has been here. We know that the history has been here for quite some time. Even a place like Qatar that we tend to hear, you know, oh, Qatar doesn't have a football history. This has been an unearned, undeserved tournament. I mean, they also established their league. It's probably much older than people realize. It's from the early 60s, which would put it 10 years older than the country itself, which doesn't receive its independence until 1971. And yet they had this league that was up and running for the better part of a decade before that. Not only is this about Qatar specifically, but it's really an accessible tournament in a way for the rest of the region, given the difficulties in travel to places like the United States, which just recently had a Muslim ban. And, you know, fans going to support the Iranian national team, for instance, or the Moroccan team would have faced really big difficulties trying to go to a tournament in North America in a way that Qatar kind of has positioned itself as a World Cup really for the region. Does it become then a venue for cultural exchange, the destruction of misconceptions and stereotypes? This is kind of where I tend to disagree a little bit with that idea. I mean, I think in theory it sounds nice, but if we're being honest, these kind of mega tournaments tend to be very closely curated by not necessarily you know, local populations, but usually they're a product of FIFA and a number of different multinational corporate sponsors and the consultancies and PR firms. And so there's a sense also of sameness that goes in with like every World Cup, where once you actually arrive, how much actual exposure you might have to the kind of local culture tends to be a little bit limited. And in that sense, I think I'm a little bit more hesitant to say that this is really an opportunity at least to share with the rest of the world a sense of what the region is about. I mean, certainly I think in some ways it might shatter some misconceptions, particularly when we think of all of the incredibly negative imagery surrounding the Middle East. So thinking about kind of the aftermath of 9-11, the war on terror, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the constant sense that this is just a place of instability and violence. And of course, Qatar is certainly not going to be um, you know, furthering those kinds of images. But whether it's actually going to be a real genuine opportunity to engage with the local culture, I think you know, I'm a little bit more hesitant to support that idea. We've covered the colonial era, the post-colonial study. But what does football mean to Middle East politics today? It's kind of part of this tug of war between powerful elites that see in it an opportunity to deploy their own interests and to try to kind of pursue their narrow goals. And here I'm thinking about all of the different authoritarian leaders in this region who have in one way or another tried to, to instrumentalize their footballing interest as a means of legitimizing themselves, as a means of kind of extending their own popularities. Let's take the case of Egypt. When Egypt qualified for the 2018 World Cup, it was its first time since 1990 that it made it to a World Cup. The regime was all over it. So they kind of made sure to associate the team's arrival in Russia with the Sisi regimes, the success and popularity of the team. And in the end, it came to its own detriment to legitimize itself. And the team ended up doing quite poorly, actually. It had a disastrous World Cup. Let's talk a little bit about this World Cup then, shall we? Are we seeing an effort to use this World Cup as a vehicle to promote issues or tackle issues like sustainability, environmental protection, diversity, even legal reform and labor reform? Because it's come under a lot of scrutiny, hasn't it? It's kind of one of those interesting things where a lot of what you're describing was completely kind of an unanticipated uh, consequence, right? Like everything that Qatar went into 
its bid going all the way back to 2009 when they kind of put this formal bid to FIFA. It was always seen as kind of an outside chance, right? There were better, more established bids out there from countries like the United States, among others. So it was a shock to everyone when they won the bid, but also I think a shock to Qatar to see kind of what the reaction has been. Right, that they didn't expect a point of pride and a point of prestige and something that would elevate its status both regionally and globally would all of a sudden actually make it a target for a concerted effort to revisit so much of the way that Qatari society is structured, whether we're talking about the migrant labor structure, governance structure, right, the kafala system, whether we're talking about kind of various other social laws, practices, beliefs, things along those lines. And even in terms of geopolitics, because we saw, of course, what happened in the 2017 blockade by several of its neighbors and the way that the World Cup was sort of rolled into all of that. And so there were a number of other kind of unanticipated consequences of Qatar winning the bid. Is that kind of unprecedented in World Cups when you look at previous ones? Well, I mean, I think controversy is always there. The question is the level, the degree of the scrutiny. I don't think we've ever seen it quite this heightened. And, and it's product of several things. I mean, for one thing, of course, there's a 12-year runway here, right? So winning the bid in 2010 for a 2022 World Cup means that there's going to be 12 years worth of people basically expressing themselves, looking into things, right? This wasn't just a three or four year preparation period. It was a much longer period in a country that, again, had no real track record. Is that producing a lot of change? I mean, human rights groups, several human rights groups have been writing about labor rights and labor issues a lot. Has that produced sort of unprecedented change when you look at other World Cups? Qatar had eventually to respond, right? I think the initial reaction was to deflect, to deny, to sort of close the conversation. There wasn't really a very coordinated response in those early days and, and even those early years. But it, I would say in the last five years or so, we've seen a much more dedicated response. Government policies changed and more ready to open up and own some of the challenges and issues with labor conditions or labor rights. Definitely. And, you know, and in part because I think we tend to ignore the fact that these are systemic issues that have much deeper roots throughout the region and even, you know, with the kind of the global economy. And they're not just something where the state itself can just wave a wand and just kind of fix everything overnight, that this is very much about the sending countries, the regulatory bodies, the multinational corporations that are actually responsible for all of these projects. The state, I think, eventually came around to taking a stronger hand and doing things like, for instance, reforming the kafala system, more or less dismantling it in practice in terms of how we see it based on the ability of workers to change employers, guaranteeing a minimum wage, thinking more deeply about safety, security and working conditions. So there's a number of things that are meant to end the abuses. And hopefully even after the World Cup, that attention or that momentum will not cease given the fact that, you know, so many of these things are already in practice. But the tendency is that the world kind of looks the other way, right? That as soon as as they move on to something else, that no one will be kind of continuing to have these conversations with the same intensity that we've seen recently. What happens after the show is always an interesting question, isn't it? Let's take a quick break here. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, Al Jazeera's original docudrama series. In season five, we meet one of the greatest goalkeepers in football, Lev Yashin. Nicknamed the Black Spider for his flexibility and acrobatic skills, 
the Soviet Union's goalkeeper refused to stay between the posts. Hindsight from Al Jazeera, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, guys. Abdullah, football has become a form of soft power, we are told. I know you don't like that expression. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, soft power has become one of those things that in trying to explain so many things, it doesn't really explain anything in a way. I mean, yes, on the one hand, we know that states, in addition to their hard power, right, the traditional things that we think about, which is basically their ability to make war or force their will onto other states in the international arena, also like to deploy the use of soft power, what scholars have kind of thought about as being the ability to win people to your side through culture, through exchange, through kind of favorable conditions. But I think what we're seeing with football, that just because it's a cultural form doesn't mean that it's purely a soft power tool. And that, in fact, even something like football can be used for very hard power reasons, right? So trying to, to kind of realign um, the geopolitics of the region. We've seen this, for instance, with a country like the United Arab Emirates, which has tried extensively through its holdings with its ownership of the Premier League team, Manchester City, to try and leverage that in its lobbying on behalf of specific policies during the height of the Arab uprisings when it was trying to get many Western governments to basically investigate opposition movements and groups throughout the region, many of whom based in Europe as well. So there's definitely those kinds of elements. Are we seeing a bit of a, a leverage war going on? The UAE, as you mentioned, bought Man City, Qatar bought Paris Saint-Germain, Saudi fund bought Newcastle United and so on. Is this a way to try and project their power through Europe, through football? It's projecting power and it's and establishing prestige, becoming kind of a, a quote-unquote brand, right? A national brand that gets viewed in a very different way. Brings us to the idea of sports washing. Is that what you're talking about? The idea that, hey, buy a club to counter any isolation and reputational damage. I mean, if you see the sights of Newcastle fans dressed in thobes and waving around Saudi flags, <laughs> then you would assume that it's probably worked, right? That it's a sight you would not expect to see a bunch of English fans kind of, you know, dressing up as Saudis and very much celebrating the arrival of their new ownership in such a way. In that sense, I think sports washing can be quite effective, but in a limited way. I don't think that ultimately it completely undoes the damage that exists. And if anything, it still continues to elicit so much of a counter response, right? All of the people, especially, you know, online, in the media, in various places, who continue to kind of actually use the sports washing as a platform to then say, let's continue to look even more deeply at some of the policies that they've been responsible for. So outside of a few legions of fans, outside of maybe some corporate sponsors and a few other kind of, you know, interested parties, there's not going to be that much of a widespread effect. Well, if it's not that effective always in terms of reputational damage correction, does club ownership play a bigger role sometimes in hard politics like the 2017 Arab boycott. Qatar faced the same kind of situation where when it was blockaded by this quartet of countries of Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Egypt, there was a sense, at least in those very early days, you know, back to the summer of 2017, there was a fear that this isolation could have tremendous damage. There was even talk of perhaps even military action against Qatar, that it was being isolated by many of its allies even beyond the four blockading countries. And so part of what 
the strategy was, again, among many, many other things. So, for instance, determining a new way for importing of goods, building the port in Hamad port in Qatar. There was a lot of responses, of course. But one of the responses that I found very curious at the time was PSG's purchase of Neymar from Barcelona, right? That we knew this was a player that PSG officials really liked and wanted, but Barcelona had put this massive 222 million euro price tag, a, a buyout clause which was meant to be prohibitive, right? No one had ever paid more than like 100 million or so on a player. To more than double that overnight, that record, was had to have been seen as more than a footballing decision. This was not about just changing the competitive fortunes or increasing the status of a team like PSG, all due respect to PSG fans. This was very much about actually ending the isolation, right? That now you have one of the sport's biggest global icons who is directly associated with your brand, with your country, who's signing, importantly here, five-year contract that would take him through 2022, right? The year of the World Cup. And since then, of course, for those who live in Qatar, they've probably seen him on the Uridu ads, they've seen him on the Qatar Airways videos. So we know that there's been an association there in terms of trying to make sure that this was seen as a means of counteracting the impact of a blockade that was meant to isolate to characterize or depict Qatar kind of in a very unsavory fashion. I think in some ways this was seen very much as both a geopolitical move in addition to being a football move. We're talking about hard politics, about how the clubs, the role the clubs and football has played during the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Yeah, I mean, this was an interesting case, which I think is relevant because... For the most part, you know, we tend to associate these practices nowadays, at least when everyone hears sports washing or hears soft power in sports, we tend to only go to the Middle East and assume that, you know, not all states engage in this. When in fact, I would say that this has been a practice as old as the sport itself. That the moment it becomes a commodity that can be easily marketed and then all countries have kind of engaged in it to some degree. And in the case of the 2004 Olympics, you know, the Iraqi national team, which at that point was undergoing tremendous awful conditions so that to the point where they couldn't even train within the country, they had to go to neighboring Jordan for their training camp. Then they go off to Athens and somehow make their way through the group stages, winning a number of really difficult games. Next thing you know, they're in the semifinal match with the possibility of competing for a gold medal. And so the U.S. at this point was desperately trying to not just legitimize its occupation of Iraq, but even spin the narrative that had it, that had seen tremendous violence break out. The fact that the U.S. occupation was not really in control at a time when there was so much violence and competition for power among various factions within the country. And this was being seen as a failed occupation by very large swaths of the American electorate at a time when George W. Bush, the president at the time who had led the country into war, was up for re-election. And so he ended up putting out a number of TV ads for his own re-election that would mention the success of the Iraqi national team. And, you know, saying things like, you know, this Olympics, there are two fewer terrorist nations, referring, of course, to Iraq and Afghanistan, and there are two new democracies on the horizon. And, you know, he would emblazon the ad with images of the Iraqi national team. And there was even rumors that he would have gone to the gold medal match had Iraq won. They ended up losing in the semifinal. And so they went to the bronze medal match instead. But there was a sense of kind of very desperately trying to position the U.S. occupation as being kind of the reason behind the success of the Iraqi team in 2004. Interesting. You've helped us all really look at football in the Middle East in a much deeper way. So 
It's been brilliant. Thank you so much, Abdullah. Yeah, happy to talk to you, Sammy. And thank you too for listening. This episode was produced by Khalid Sultan and our intern, Nada Shakir. Sound design is by George Elwir. Our engagement producer is Ayel Malik and our assistant engagement producer is Munir Dosri. Our executive producer is, of course, Omar Saleh. Ney Alvarez is head of audio. I'm your host, Sami Zaydan. For now, it's goodbye, guys. Thank you.